Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The enduring quest for a Playboy's gold. He says that anyone who finds it is now welcome to it. A daring feat in a desert inferno. This was capable of being on fire perhaps 100 years or more. And the bizarre afterlife of a failed felon. When he gets it in the light, he realizes that he's dealing with a human body. Within the walls of great institutions lie secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. Settled during the Great Land Rush of 1889, Guthrie, Oklahoma was the first capital of America's 46th state. And among the Victorian-era buildings that line its historic downtown is a stately repository of the region's heritage, the Oklahoma Territorial Museum and Carnegie Library. Artifacts like a 19th-century wagon, a flag celebrating Oklahoma's statehood, and an original prairie cabin typify Guthrie's frontier days. But museum historian Michael Williams knows that among these relics is one item that links a classic tale of the Old West to a spooky modern-day discovery. The artifact's made of metal and wood, and it's approximately nine inches long. It weighs about 12 ounces, and it's extremely recognizable once you see it. This object marked the beginning of a dark and outlandish journey that spanned seven decades and thousands of miles. The story is very macabre. It's spooky and it's kind of a little bit gross. So how did this gun set in motion one of the most freakish and bizarre series of events in the history of the Wild West? It's 1976 at the New Pike Amusement Park in Long Beach, California. Here, visitors enjoy over 200 games, roller coasters, and concessions, including a popular haunted ride called the Laugh-in-the-Dark Funhouse. In early December, 
a Hollywood TV crew rents the funhouse to shoot a scene for a show. While setting up a shot, a prop technician attempts to reposition one of the ride's creepy attractions, a mummy that hangs in a noose from the ceiling. But he accidentally breaks its arm off. He apparently reaches down, picks it up, and when he gets it in the light, the tech notices a bone sticking from the arm. At that point, he realizes that he's, he's dealing with a human body. Park operators are perplexed by the discovery. They don't know how long it's been in the fun house. They really don't have any kind of information at all on it. In an effort to identify the mummy, authorities transport it to the coroner for autopsy. The coroner realizes that he's a middle-aged Caucasian man. A small indentation on the torso indicates the cause of death, a bullet wound to the chest. And as he continues to examine the body, he makes a bizarre discovery. The coroner opens the mummy's mouth and realizes that there's foreign objects inside. The coroner pulls out several paper tickets that read Sonny's Amusements and a copper penny from 1924. Perplexed by these curious clues, the coroner issues a press release in the hopes of uncovering the mummy's identity. Within days, newspaper reporters establish that Sonny's was a Los Angeles crime museum that closed decades earlier. And this mummy was once exhibited as the infamous Oklahoma outlaw. So who was this man? And what misadventures led to his strange preservation as a funhouse ghoul? It seems the story of this mummy's strange journey to the Laugh in the Dark Funhouse begins in northern Oklahoma in 1911. Elmer McCurdy is a 31-year-old alcoholic drifter and bandit planning an ambitious heist. $400,000 in cash aboard the southbound MK&T Express. At 1 a.m., McCurdy and two accomplices flag down the train and force their way on board. But their luck takes a turn for the worse when they find no cash in the valuables cabin. At this time, they realized that they'd stopped the wrong train. A disappointed McCurdy ransacks the train for loose change and whiskey. News of the attempted heist spreads quickly, and a posse of lawmen is dispatched to track down McCurdy. Two days later, they corner him in a barn on a remote ranch. The three lawmen start exchanging shots with McCurdy. A sharpshooter named Stringer Fenton strikes McCurdy with a fatal bullet, fired from this Luger pistol on display at the Oklahoma Territorial Museum. McCurdy's body is then brought to the nearby town of Pahuska. They turn the body over to Joseph Johnson, the undertaker. When no one steps forward to claim the remains, Johnson senses an opportunity. News had spread around that there had been a train robbery and a shootout, and, you know, here was this dead outlaw. He packs McCurdy's remains full of toxic chemicals to preserve the corpse and dresses it in outlaw garb. He then sets the body on display in his back room, advertising for all to come see this new attraction, the Oklahoma Outlaw. People come from miles around to look at the dead outlaw. At some point, Johnson started charging a nickel for people to come and see the body. As word of the popular spectacle spreads, several carnival owners approach Johnson hoping to buy the mummy for their own sideshows. Unwilling to relinquish his profitable enterprise, Johnson refuses the offers. 
But several weeks later, a man arrives at the funeral parlor with a different kind of request. He makes the claim of being Elmer McCurdy's brother. He said he was there to fulfill his mother's dying wish, to bring Elmer home to her in California. Johnson can't say no to McCurdy's family and releases the body to the man. But it's not long before he hears some shocking news. So within days of leaving Johnson's funeral parlor, the mummy ends up in a traveling sideshow. Duped out of his lucrative enterprise, Johnson is furious. In the years that follow, McCurdy's body shuttles between various museums and carnivals. At Sonny's, patrons are encouraged to insert their admission tickets into the bandit's mouth. Over the years, people fail to realize that he's human. He's a sideshow attraction. He's a mannequin. He's, he's a mummy. He's lost to the world as a human being. But in 1977, after the Los Angeles coroner positively identifies the remains as those of Elmer McCurdy, they are shipped to Guthrie, Oklahoma, and finally laid to rest. And this pistol, on display at the nearby Oklahoma Territorial Museum, represents the starting point for the remarkable posthumous journey of one of the state's most infamous outlaws. Philadelphia may be best known for its prominent role in achieving America's independence, but it is also the nation's first center for scientific and technological innovation. And dedicated to documenting early advances in these fields is the Franklin Institute. Among its collection are a Baldwin 6000 locomotive, a massive Foucault pendulum, and the first bifocal glasses in history, designed by museum namesake Benjamin Franklin. But dangling from the ceiling of the air show exhibit is a particularly impressive artifact of 20th century innovation. This contraption weighs 800 pounds. It has two eight-foot propellers, four small wheels, two leather seats, and a 39-foot wingspan. As historian Hilary Kativa tells it, this flyer represents not just a milestone in aviation, but a soaring tale of riches, scandal, and evasion. Its owner brought disgrace and shame upon the U.S. government. To whom did this plane belong? And how did he spark an infamous treasure hunt that still continues to this day? 1917, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. While the nation prepares to enter World War I, a 24-year-old named Grover Cleveland Bergdahl is more concerned with the finer things in life. Handsome and charismatic, he's heir to a multi-million dollar brewery fortune. He was really a notorious figure, often in the gossip pages of the Philadelphia social scene. Bergdahl is a voracious thrill seeker, and his latest high-status toy, a brand new Model B flyer. It's the first commercially produced plane that the Wright brothers sell. Bergdahl masters the aircraft quickly and completes over 700 flights without mishap. But he soon gets notice that his high-flying days may be numbered when the U.S. government announces a mandatory draft for World War I. But the aristocrat has no interest in serving his country on the front lines in Europe. He's not really accustomed to taking orders from anyone. So in defiance, he goes to the bank, he withdraws a large portion of his family fortune, and sets off on the run. 
For the next two and a half years, authorities hunt for the draft-dodging playboy. And on January 7, 1920, investigators finally track him down at his latest hideout, his family's vast Philadelphia mansion. The millionaire is given a five-year sentence for desertion and is placed in a military prison on Governor's Island in New York Harbor. But two months into his confinement, he makes an outrageous request. He claims that while he was on the run, he buried $150,000 in gold coins in secret locations across the United States. And now he wants permission from the authorities to go retrieve this treasure. His lawyers argue the money is needed to pay their costly legal bills, and the police grant Bergdahl's request. Two officers accompany Bergdahl to his family's mansion in Philadelphia, where they plan to start their search early the following day. The next morning, when the phone rings in the neighboring room, the officers allow Bergdahl to answer it alone. After waiting several minutes for Bergdahl's return, the officers check on the aristocrat. But to their horror, he's nowhere to be found. They frantically search the vast family mansion, but Bergdahl is gone. An embarrassed U.S. government must come to terms with the fact that they've been duped by the notorious playboy. They think this pot of gold story was just a ruse to get the officers to look the other way. The government launches an official investigation into his disappearance. And they dig up some shocking information about his rumored buried treasure. A family friend claims to have converted a huge sum of banknotes into gold coins for Bergdahl before he dodged the draft. So will the police be able to track down Bergdahl? And is his story of buried treasure really true? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, 
1920 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, when draft-dodging multimillionaire Grover Cleveland Bergdahl is arrested. He claims to have buried $150,000 worth of gold in a secret location. Then, the slippery playboy manages to escape, ostensibly to retrieve his buried treasure. So is Bergdahl's tale of riches true? And can he be brought to justice? Clues to the whereabouts of the fabled riches surface when a Maryland farmer, whose land borders a Bergdahl vacation property, makes a curious discovery. A farmer finds the initials GB with an arrow pointing into the valley. People suspect that the arrow is a clue to the location of Bergdahl's buried gold. Then a newspaper receives a surprising statement from the scofflaw, who's caught wind of the farmer's story. He says that anyone who finds it is now welcome to it. His statement sets off a frenzied treasure hunt as prospectors rush to Maryland hoping to dig up a big payday. But no gold is ever found. Then, 19 years later, Bergdahl decides it's finally time to face justice and turns himself in. Under a wartime law that commandeers the property of those who flee, the government seizes many of his assets, including his beloved Model B flyer, now on display at the Franklin Institute. But before heading to the slammer, Bergdahl delivers one more twist to the story of his hidden gold. He claims he retrieved his treasure, which was buried in the back of his closet the entire time. Much of the public has lost all trust in Bergdahl and his tales of treasure. But to this very day, there are those who believe that $150,000 in gold coins is still out there. Today, it would be worth $1.4 million. And for visitors to the Franklin Institute, Bergdahl's Model B flyer remains a soaring reminder of the incorrigible playboy and his fabled hidden riches. San Diego, California is known as the city in motion for good reason. 70% of its 30 million visitors arrive by car each year. But documenting a more lofty form of travel is the San Diego Air and Space Museum. The institution tells the story of famous flyers, like the Spirit of St. Louis, the Apollo 9 command module, and impressive fighters from World Wars I and II. Yet amidst these venerated vessels is a little-known oddity. The artifact is about three feet high and two feet wide and made out of aluminum and plastic. It has 16 empty milk jugs attached to it with rope and tape. Although these mundane materials were not intended for flight, according to communications director Jessica Packard, this artifact reached realms typically graced only by commercial airliners. This was part of an extremely dangerous journey with shocking results. Who constructed this makeshift marvel? And how did he pilot it to unimaginable heights? 1982, San Pedro, California. 33-year-old truck driver and aviation enthusiast Larry Walters has dreamed of a career in the Air Force since he was a child. But one thing has held that dream at bay, poor eyesight. Larry couldn't even earn a standard pilot's license. And he was very discouraged that he couldn't fly the way he wanted to. As he contemplates ways to transcend his limitations, 
Walters is struck by the memory of a visit to an Army-Navy surplus store. Larry had seen large weather balloons. He believed that if he bought dozens of these balloons, he could attach them to his lawn chair and fly. He reasons that if he fills 42 six-foot weather balloons with helium, he can ascend to 1,000 feet and level off. But the plan is hardly without risk. The makeshift craft will be nearly impossible to steer. He'll be completely at the mercy of the wind. In preparation for his trip, Larry studied wind patterns and plotted where he wanted to go. His plan was to fly across California and eventually reach the Rocky Mountains. For stability in the blustery conditions, Walters affixes 35 milk jugs filled with water to his chair. And to control his altitude, he plans to pop the balloons one by one with a pellet gun, allowing him to level off, then descend. On July 2nd, he gathers his friends for the launch of his lofty scheme. They tether his contraption to the earth with two ropes. In a side compartment, he packs his pellet gun, a CB radio, sandwiches, and beer. Then Walters climbs aboard and gives the command to cut the first rope. When Walters cut the first restraint on the chair, he felt the tug of the helium. Then, in an instant, the remaining tether breaks on its own, jerking Walters skyward. His glasses fly off in the rapid ascent. Walters was quickly soaring, higher and higher with no end in sight. The balloons pulled him so fast that he was gaining altitude at 1,000 feet per minute. Walter's friends are dumbfounded as they watch him soar past his intended altitude before leveling off at a dizzying 16,000 feet. Larry's friends radio him, pleading for him to come down. But an exhilarated Walters refuses to bring his long-planned journey to an end. Then, the winds suddenly shift direction. Walters has no rudder, no sails, nothing to control the way he's going. He's still at the mercy of the winds. Then, commercial airline pilots approaching Los Angeles International Airport observe a confounding sight. A man in a lawn chair with a gun in his lap. If Walters were to be sucked into a jet engine, it would spell doom for both him and the airliner. Air traffic controllers scramble to reroute the enormous aircraft. And miraculously, Walters glides through LAX airspace without incident. But there's a new problem. The chilling high-altitude temperatures are taking a toll on the ill-prepared pilot. Hoping to bring this ride to an end, he begins to shoot at the balloons with his pellet gun. The lawn chair began to drift aimlessly as it slowly approached the ground. After an hour of flight time, Walters touches down, having finally fulfilled his dream. This was truly an unbelievable thing to do, but he pulled it off. But his troubles are not over yet. Walters is immediately arrested by the local police. And though he is soon released from jail, the FAA is livid over Walters' encroachment into federal airspace. They fine him $1,500 for his perilous stunt. But to Walters, it's been worth it. Walters is thrilled to have accomplished his lifelong dream. The self-made pilot basks in the glow of national publicity, making appearances on late-night TV. But over time, his life returns to normal. Today, 
This aluminum lawn chair that propelled an unlikely pilot into the annals of aviation sits at the San Diego Air and Space Museum as a testament to the power of dreams and one man's crazy scheme to make his come true. 40 miles outside of New York City is the quiet township of Old Bridge, New Jersey. Here, small ponds which dot the landscape were once used in the 1800s to harvest clay for pottery. And tasked with honoring this region's centuries-old heritage is the Thomas Warren Historical Museum. Located in a former schoolhouse, the museum showcases artifacts from the region's earliest days, from 300-year-old pots to a 19th-century harmonium. But amidst these items of antique serenity, one artifact seems scarred by a violent past. It's heavy and it has a rather jagged edge. It looks like this object has had quite a serious history. According to author Randall Gabrielin, this roughly hewn object tells of unprecedented devastation. I think the story is not well known because the nation was eager to forget, but there's a tragedy behind this. How is this jagged piece of metal linked to one of the largest explosions to ever occur on American soil? October 1918. World War I is raging in Europe, and America must provide the Allies with a steady supply of ammunition. And one of the country's largest munitions depots is the T.A. Gillespie Loading Company in New Jersey. The Gillespie plant was a vast facility of over 2,000 acres. They were producing about a million shells per month. But while the industry has brought stability and wealth to the community, it also carries an enormous risk. Just two years earlier, a munitions plant 30 miles away called Black Tom was attacked by German saboteurs. There was a massive explosion that rattled the area both literally and figuratively. Seven people were killed and hundreds more injured. And ever since, security at the Gillespie facility has been on high alert. On Friday, October 4th, 2,000 men file into the heavily guarded depot for the night shift. One of those men is named Andrew Kowalski. Kowalski was an ordinary line worker. The newly married Slovak immigrant is working in Building 611, assembling munition shells. Work is proceeding like any other night. Then, at 7.40 p.m., the calm is suddenly pierced by a thunderous blast. A massive explosion rips through Building 611, reducing it to a blazing pile of rubble. And heat from the blast ignites a fire which begins to spread. Emergency personnel race to the scene to stop the blaze. But they can't contend with the powerful inferno. The firefighters were forced to retreat. They did not have adequate water to put out the fire. Then the unthinkable happens. Munition stockpiles throughout the plant erupt in a calamitous chain reaction. The blast became more and more severe, louder and louder, and the sky lit up with these great bursts of color. As workers scatter, shells like this 75-millimeter casing from the Thomas Warren Historical Museum fall all around them. It was panic. It was terror. Then artillery shells begin to careen into the nearby town. Citizens flee their homes as shells rain down on the city streets. Helpless authorities can do nothing but wait for the chain of explosions to subside. Then, on Sunday morning, 
48 hours after the first explosion, the flames finally die down. When the smoke clears, over 300 buildings have been destroyed, and more than 100 people, including Andrew Kowalski, have perished. In the aftermath, workers and townspeople press authorities for an explanation as to what caused the initial explosion. And amidst the search for answers, some notice unsettling similarities between the explosion and the attack on Black Tom two years earlier. Some workers reported seeing mysterious individuals around the plants. Terrified by the chilling possibility, word of the nefarious plot spreads quickly. Some workers reported seeing a mysterious stranger and even the rumor of a possible saboteur. But despite the rumors, investigators are unable to corroborate any evidence of sabotage and are forced to abandon the theory. Then, as authorities piece together eyewitness accounts of the explosion, another explanation comes to light. In Building 611, where the first blast occurred, men like Andrew Kowalski were working with a highly explosive substance known as amatol. The raw element is a crucial ingredient in munitions, but first, it needs to be melted down. Investigators discover that while the volatile material was being heated, something went wrong. There was an accident. The molten material caught fire. But at the moment it could have been contained, a worker eschewed safety in favor of preserving the costly substance. The worker didn't take the hose to the kettle because he wanted to save the kettle full of Amatol. And as the temperature rose, the Amatol exploded, triggering a deadly chain reaction. His intentions were good. His results were tragic. In the wake of the disaster, plans are quickly drafted to rebuild the plant. But only five weeks later, the war ends, and all efforts to rebuild are suspended. In the following years, the devastating explosion at the Gillespie plant fades from public memory. But the brave sacrifice of men like Andrew Kowalski does not. He was fighting a fight that was just as courageous as those on the battlefront because he gave his all for his country. And today, this torn shell casing on display at the Thomas Warren Historical Museum is a reminder of the lives lost in service to the nation and of the terrifying disaster that once shook central New Jersey to its core. New York City's Chinatown is home to the largest enclave of Chinese people within the Western Hemisphere. And just a few blocks from this lively district is an institution devoted to documenting the history of this group, the Museum of Chinese in America. But amongst these traditional Chinese artifacts is one object that represents a uniquely American dream. This artifact is a papier-mâché sculpture it's 14 and a half inches high, eight inches wide, and about 10 and a half inches in length. According to author Patrick Ratton Keefe, this sculpture speaks to the unbelievable lengths some took in hopes of a better life. It's a symbol of freedom created under incredibly trying circumstances. Who made this eagle sculpture? And what harrowing circumstances led to its creation? 1993. Queens, New York. In the early morning hours of June 6th, two Park Service officers are patrolling the beach near the quiet community of Breezy Point. The most they might expect to encounter would be a teenage keg party out on the beach. 
But what starts out as a typical patrol soon takes a dramatic turn. The officers heard these screams. They pointed their flashlights out into the water and they started seeing people flailing in the surf. They see a ship apparently stuck in the shallow waters and what appears to be passengers frantically swimming to shore. The officers immediately call for backup. And in short order, you had police cars, fire trucks, helicopters in the air, emergency vehicles of every description. Through the early morning hours, first responders pull people from the frigid, turbulent waters. In the end, 10 people die and 276 survive, all of them passengers on a ship called the Golden Venture. But officials are presented with a huge challenge. Few of the survivors speak English. As they realized that these people were actually illegal immigrants, law enforcement tried to figure out where had these people come from. When the survivors are processed by the INS, they reveal to translators that they are from the Chinese province of Fujian and that they fled their native country in a desperate bid to escape poverty and political repression. But leaving China through legal channels was no easy task. So the desperate immigrants entered into agreements with criminal gangs known as snakeheads. A snakehead is a people smuggler who you can pay to take you out of one country and into another. No passport, no visa, no problem. Working with an informant within the snakeheads, investigators learn that the smugglers plan to anchor the Golden Venture near the New York coast and then unload their human cargo onto small, stealthy fishing boats. But along the way, the plan went terribly awry. The gangs operating in America had attracted the attention of local law enforcement. Many members had been arrested shortly before the Golden Venture's arrival leaving the ship's crew with no way to safely shuttle the passengers to shore. They had no other options. So it was really out of desperation that they ran the ship aground. The passengers had only one choice. Jump into the frigid waters and swim for it. So who organized this massive human smuggling ring? Investigators suspect that the brains behind the operation is an infamous trafficker known as Sister Ping, Posing as a simple middle-aged store owner, Sister Ping has in fact run a smuggling operation since 1984. The profitable enterprise has made her into one of the FBI's most wanted Asian crime figures. Sister Ping was an important target because she had been responsible for a series of other smuggling incidents and because she'd managed to get away for so long. But the FBI discovers that in the wake of the high-profile disaster, Sister Ping has fled to China. After seven years, the Bureau finally catches a break when she checks into a flight in Hong Kong. The U.S. authorities arranged to have her arrested, and she was captured at the airport. Through existing diplomatic channels, Sister Ping is extradited to the U.S., where she is placed on trial. She is ultimately convicted of conspiracy to smuggle humans and sentenced to 35 years in prison. As for the Chinese passengers of the Golden Venture, many find themselves languishing in immigration limbo. When they got stuck in immigration detention, they found that they were incredibly bored and they were frustrated because they felt there was nothing they could do. While waiting to learn their fate, some occupy their time by crafting elaborate sculptures. The paper statuettes are interpretations of well-known American symbols, 
like this eagle, now on display at the Museum of the Chinese in America. And their lawyers started selling the sculptures in order to pay for the legal cases of the passengers. In the end, some of the passengers are granted asylum in the U.S. and Mexico, while nearly 100 are deported back to China. But today, the sculptures made by the detained passengers of the ill-fated Golden Venture stand on display at the Museum of Chinese in America, a testament to the unwavering lengths people will go to achieve a better life. College Station in Central Texas is home to Texas A&M University. Founded in 1876, it houses the George Bush Presidential Library and Museum. Here, visitors can view items that commemorate the country's 41st president, such as an Avenger torpedo bomber like the one Bush flew in World War II, as well as his own personal baseball glove. But there's one artifact here which honors another famous Texan. This object is round, it's hard, it's red, it has an insignia on the front, it's a little well-worn. According to professor of history Paul Spellman, this hard hat is inextricably linked to a scorching tale of bravery. It's a story of danger, but it's also a story of great courage. Who wore this helmet, and what role did he play in an explosive act of heroism? 1961, the Algerian Sahara. The arid and rugged terrain of this African desert conceals a vast treasure, a sprawling 20,000-acre deposit of oil and natural gas. It's considered one of the largest in the world. The wells of energy companies dot the landscape, and it seems the source of their riches will flow forever. But on November 6th, on a site run by Phillips Petroleum Company, disaster strikes. The Orig workers heard this tremendous explosion. A spark above a ruptured pipe ignited the well's seemingly endless supply of gas and is shooting flames 800 feet into the air. For a mile radius all the way around a desert, you could feel the heat, you could feel the vibration in the earth itself. You could not step closer to it without feeling real burn. So severe is this fire that it's named the Devil's Cigarette Lighter. In the wake of the accident, thankfully, no one is hurt. But with 550 cubic feet of gas spewing out each day, there's no telling how long the inferno will last. This was capable of being on fire for perhaps 100 years or more. The towering gas fire is costing the Phillips Petroleum Company hundreds of thousands of dollars a day. And they know there's only one man who can stop the blaze. He was a man named Red Adair. 46-year-old Paul Red Adair has built a reputation as one of the most fearless oil and gas well firefighters in the world and Red accepts the daunting challenge. Once in the desert, he starts laying out his audacious plan. Red knows that applying water to the fire will only cause it to spread. He determines that he has only one option, to suck the life force out of the inferno with a nitroglycerin explosion. Nitroglycerin extinguishes the fire because there's no oxygen for the fire to feed on. To safely move the volatile explosive near the blaze, 
Red and his team will attach a 50-foot boom to a bulldozer. From it, they will hang a canister holding 750 pounds of nitroglycerin, which they'll maneuver to the base of the fire. It takes five months and over $4 million worth of equipment for Red and his men to prepare the site. To combat the heat, the team builds three 10-foot-deep pools, which will pump water through cannons. They were going to be used to cool the area around the fire once they began to approach it. On April 28th, Red dons his trusty red helmet, like the one at the George Bush Presidential Museum, and sets out across the desert. As planned, the water cannons douse the area, but this measure causes its own problems. The men are drenched. It's difficult to walk through all of that. They can hardly see because of this downpour. Red and his team inch closer to the source of the fire and prepare to put the explosive into place. Within a few feet of the inferno, Red brings the bulldozer to a halt and places the explosive onto the ground. He makes a run for the detonator and sets it off. There was a blinding explosion of this huge amount of pure nitroglycerin. But did his daring plan work? Red Adair could see that the only thing blowing in the air was natural gas. The fire was out. The team rushes back in to repair the wellhead and stop the flow of gas. Within days, the site is operating as usual. Red achieved what some thought impossible, and his heroic feats become known across the world and back at home. Even before Red Adair returned to the United States, he uh, his face already in magazines and newspapers, articles already being written about him. In 1968, his exploits are turned into a movie, Hellfighters, starring John Wayne. For the next 20 years, Red dedicates his life to his dangerous profession of putting out wellfires around the globe. And this helmet at the George Bush Presidential Library and Museum stands as a reminder of one man's triumphs over one of the world's most dangerous fires. From a high-flying plane to a funhouse mummy, a symbol of freedom to war-torn shrapnel. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.